metta retreat, a loving-kindness retreat, the way we're doing it here together for these eight days, is a, it's a kind of a complex amalgam of different experiences that you all can go through. So when there's a hundred of you, you can be going through the different experiences, you know, different ones at different times. There's the strain of the loving-kindness that's being cultivated, the feeling of loving-kindness, the stuff that comes up around it, how you relate to the different meta-subjects. There's the concentration strain, which may or may not come together with the loving-kindness. Sometimes you just feel really concentrated, no loving-kindness. Sometimes just loving-kindness, no concentration. And I know you're thinking you're in the third category, which is neither loving-kindness nor concentration, and sometimes it feels like that. And um, deciding which strain to speak to tonight, after we spoke with only about half of you today, I thought maybe I'd speak to what happens in the times when there's a lot of difficulty that's coming up. Because what occurs when loving-kindness is turned towards difficulty, pain, suffering of any form, what, it, what arises is compassion. It's subtly different from loving-kindness, but it's really the face of loving-kindness in connection with our suffering. And so in a couple of days, we'll teach the specifics of compassion as another divine abode, Brahma-vihara, But in the meantime, we're all working with and experiencing compassion. And it's a a wonderful way to begin to see that we can relate to the things we don't like, the things we're afraid of, including the fear itself, in a different way. Because compassion, just as metta is, as is empathetic joy and equanimity, so-called divine abodes, vast, boundless, undiscriminating. In other words, compassion is another expression of our unitive nature. It's actually one of the beautiful states of heart and mind. It's a happy state, believe it or not, that the heart of metta, in connection with suffering, that's compassion, It's a beautiful expression of the truth of who we are. Not the way most of us think about our resistance, is it? Or the fear, or the pain. But it's really about unlearning our mistaken response to what is difficult in our life. Compassion, karuna in the Pali, is... um, One of the definitions, which I really like because I'm sort of kinesthetic and that's how it feels to me, is the quivering of the heart in response to suffering, in response to pain, in connection with pain. The quivering of the heart, sort of vibrating together, not the quivering of get me out of here, the quivering of vibrating together. And instead of our conditioned response to ours or another person's strong difficulty of what can I do to fix it, but fix it meaning so I shouldn't have to know about it or feel it anymore, or of judgment or self-judgment or blame. 
it can really become a way of opening more deeply into truth and connectedness. Quivering of the heart, connectedness. When a couple of, when was it? (laughs) The end of April, I really, that was a deluded moment. I lose track of where I am and what month it is and stuff like that. So the end of April, I was leading a retreat in Colorado and it started just a couple of days after um, that massacre in the high school in Littleton in Colorado. And though we were a few hours away from that, there were people at the retreat from Denver. And it was also that the sense of the bombing in Yugoslavia was very strong. And there was people in the retreat, of course, going through their own deep um, sadness and fears and pain and suffering, just as people are here. And in talking with one woman who came from the Denver area and so felt very affected by that that massacre in the high school, just, you know, knowing people who went to that school, etc. And she said she'd been really questioning not only the pain in the world, but also her own pain and what's the good of sitting here and just being with my sadness and my grief. She's in a lot of grief, but it felt personal at first. But she said, and I I, I thought it was really a beautiful thing, um, that little by little she came to be able to be with her own grief, saw that it opened into really the grief of the world. When you, when you really resonate with your suffering, it stops being just me, and it moves into that boundless quality that connects us with all beings. We really see through compassion that we're not separate. And what she said was, okay, I was you know, really struggling with, am I just being selfish? What's the point of just being with this difficult stuff? Is it worth it? Is it useful? And then when, she, when we were talking, she said she had really come to see that by being able to be with what she was going through then, however big or little it might seem, she said, I really get it. That, that will be that much less violence, that much less anger that I'll have to put out into the world. That by simply being able to be with whatever's arising in my experience, it really translates into more compassion, more kindness in the way I am in the world. That might seem like a little thing. I think it's really huge. It's the beginning of true compassion. Where else can it begin? Where else can it deepen? But here within our own experience, you know. I remember when I first started in practice, I was 19, and, of course, quite idealistic. And I would, I would practice for a while, and then I'd think, well, okay, now I'm feeling pretty good. I have to go save the world. <laughs> you know how long that lasts, and I go out for a little while, go back to college, get all caught up again, never mind saving the world. I just want to function again in a happy way, go back into practice. It doesn't have to be quite such a dichotomy, but I really see that until I can be with my own pain and suffering the pain that's elicited in me when I'm with someone else who's in pain, I can't really be there for somebody else. So in our our practice here, in the metta, when all these difficult things come up, it's not a mistake. It's not a sign of failure. It's not a sign that you're hopeless. 
at this practice or that the practice is going backwards. Have you had thoughts like that? Just flickering through, you know, if you're doing it right, it should be all bliss. And it was it's interesting, a couple of people in our group today have had retreats where it was mostly bliss. And it ain't happening now. And that really, really can lead into the feeling of, I had it right, and now I don't anymore. Now I've got it wrong. So I think where we have to start in beginning to see where we get so astray in our response to our suffering is really to come to a deeper understanding of the first noble truth of the Buddha. You remember that, most of you, right? (laughs) People laugh, just in case, that the, the unsatisfactory quality of life, that there's pain, that there's old age sickness, disease, and death, that we have to spend time with what we don't like, that we get separated from what we like, that things change. That that's just a fact of life. Not good, not bad. It's just a fact of life. And what, what's so interesting, in a way, the way we don't quite take that in, which I think why the Buddha made that the first noble truth, we say, well, you know, big deal, we know that. But do we? When we get sick, somehow can it be it's a sign of failure? If I really had it together spiritually, this wouldn't be happening. As I said, when your practice goes bad, when good practice goes bad, it's always something that you're doing wrong, and if you could get it, figure it out, only good things would happen from now on. Or just in our culture, how much, when something difficult happens, physically, emotionally, or you lose your job, or anything, that it's so easy to get into a feeling of self-blame, or shame, or figuring out what you did wrong, or needing to hide it or something. It's a way we're not quite getting it. That difficulty, pain, sadness, sorrow, losing people we love, getting sick, the whole show, it's an inescapable part of our journey of awakening. Nobody gets away with it only being bliss. I'm sorry to tell you. Nobody does, because we're humans in this body, at the very least. At the very least, somewhere along the way, we'll die. So far, that's what seems to always happen. And it's not, <laughs> it's not a sign of failure. It's, <laughs> We're so ingrained to close down around suffering, or push it away, or hold back from it, that to think of compassion the quivering of the heart in response to pain as one of several avenues into the boundlessness of our unitive nature, into the boundlessness of freedom. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sure, if we had the choice between compassion and sympathetic joy, maybe we'd go to sympathetic joy, but we all have all of it. So the the suffering aspect is one of the things that we all have in common as humans. And it seems so sad to me that that's something we we tend to feel like we need to hide or gloss over or move away from. And that only keeps us spinning in more confusion and suffering. Our society perpetuates this a little. Franz 
tells me coming from, from Germany, it's a slight, slightly different culture, not hugely different, but some difference. And one thing he says he notices, okay, this is him, but there's some truth to it, right? About Americans <laughs> is our tendency to, you know, first of all, how are you? I'm fine. That's just what we say. And mostly you're not supposed to, if you're not fine, and someone you meet on the street says, how are you? Do you launch into a whole thing about what's wrong in my back and my spleen? Probably not. Oh, yeah, I'm fine. Smile, smile, good, go on our way. That's what we're supposed to do. He says, you guys are always smiling. How are you? Fine. I know you're feeling miserable. Why are you smiling and saying fine? Or, you know, if we're having, going on vacation and we're suffering, well, don't tell anybody. You don't want to bring them down. You know, we've got to hide it. And it's, it's just sort of another way of saying it's just part of life, but we don't quite accept it. The links will go to, this is true, maybe you've heard of it. This kind of blew me away. Have you heard of Botox shots? This is a new beauty treatment. It's shots that are made out of botulism toxin, Botox, seriously. I heard this on National Public Radio. And what the, they, they give you these shots in your face because what they, <laughs> this is this, right. What it does is paralyze temporarily for a few months certain facial muscles, the ones that let you frown. And so what it does is because you can't frown if you're getting a lot of wrinkles from frowning, then you can't frown for a few months. So you don't get these, <laughs> these wrinkles and you can be happy, happy all the time. <laughs> and another twist that is being taken to I, this is true, I swear. Another twist that's being taken to is because of the fact that you can't frown, certain like high-power professionals like lawyers and bankers and stockbrokers have started getting shots of this before they go into important meetings. So their face can't give them away, you know, if they're doing certain kind of, certain kind of uh, deals and stuff. Yes. It's scary but true. So, we come from a deep conditioning that suffering is wrong, and if we're suffering, it's shameful, or we're failing. Of course, we'd rather not be suffering. I'm not saying we're going to say, great, you know, I'm so happy to be suffering, another chance to open into unity. <laughs> Actually, there's times once you are suffering, you can say, okay, at least it's happening, at least I can use it to open into truth. But... We don't have to have this shameful, fearful, keep it away from me attitude. That's what keeps us locked in separateness. That's what keeps us in this illusion of looking elsewhere for happiness. And in the metta, as we try to hold the suffering at bay, keep it away, metta doesn't really let us do that. Because metta is this outflowing, undiscriminating quality of heart. It doesn't say, yes, all of you accept that piece. I mean, we try to say that, and that piece just gets bigger and bigger, and we see that by trying to hold the difficulty at bay. We're not holding the difficulty at bay, we're holding life at bay. We're denying ourselves the recognition of our wholeness, of our completeness. We're keeping ourselves uh, artificially separate from life. From Tame Children. We think that by protecting ourselves from suffering, we're being kind to ourselves. The truth is, 
we only become more fearful, more hardened, more alienated. We experience ourselves as being separate from the whole. And this separation becomes like a prison for us that restricts us to our personal hopes and fears and to caring only for the people nearest to us. Curiously enough, if we primarily try to shield ourselves from discomfort, we suffer. Yet when we don't close off and we let our hearts break, we discover our kinship with all beings. It's really true. When we don't close off, when we're not afraid of letting our hearts break, of that sorrow, whatever it is we're afraid of, in that we find again our connectedness. In little ways, in big ways, you know, you don't have to think in terms of the Dalai Lama. In little ways, just a personal example, my father, in the last, I guess it's about four years, has developed Parkinson's disease. And when uh, it was first coming on for a year or two, uh, it hadn't been diagnosed. We didn't really know what it was. And when I'd go home to visit for a few days, and we have a pretty good relationship. Uh, He's always been very smart, very quick, very funny. And I'd go home to very athletic. And I'd go home to visit, and he was kind of, you know, moving very carefully. and, um, And the mental aspect of Parkinson's were just kind of, dulls you out and you'd have this kind of vacant stare. He'd go to turn on a light switch or something and just kind of be staring vacantly for a while. And it was so painful. But what I found myself doing was getting impatient with him, right? I mean, we didn't have like a name to call it, Parkinson's disease, didn't know what. But I found myself getting impatient, saying, come on, what are you doing? Turn on the light or whatever. And then, of course, when I'd go be alone, I'd feel awful about it. And as I just sat and explored my impatience and what was going on, I saw, really, it it took some time, because it's always like, why can't he fix it? What can we do to make it better? All of that dance. And then I really saw the place in me where it was so painful to see him going through that, to feel his pain, and also my own, you know, losing the father I had known, which is going to happen. But it was so painful. I could see that my impatience was actually my way of not feeling my own pain. And it's so doubly painful to see that my father, who had always been kind of um, quick to anger, has turned into Mr. Mellow these last few years, you know. And he's much more open and affectionate. And here I was being impatient and kind of pushing him away. I mean, Miss Vipassana, right? Miss Metta, I'm pushing my poor loving father away because I didn't want to be with the pain, you know. That's what we do. Seeing it, seeing it's often enough. It's like, oh, wow, let my heart break. Let myself feel it over and over. Once doesn't do it, you know, but not to be afraid of that sadness. And that's really all that has to happen. Because once I wasn't afraid of it, then I could be there with him. I don't have to make some big statement, you know. I could just be there with him. It's, it's a wordless thing. And I have to keep relearning that you know, as the disease develops, as he gets scared. Can I be with my scaredness enough so I can be there for him when he gets scared? It's, it all starts with us, you know. I can have great ideas about how compassionate I should be, but until I can be with my own pain about it, can't do it, really do it, you know. 
So it's a small example. We all have lots of them. But it's a hint, I think, of the vast possibilities of the, the strength, the unitive nature, and the real power of compassion once we learn that we can trust enough to let our hearts break. And it just takes doing it over and over. And it's fine to start with little things. That's what happens here on the retreat. They may not feel little, they're huge. Sometimes you'll think, well, this is really trite. What am I so upset about this for? I know in the big picture, this is small. But here, the big picture has gotten a lot smaller and the energy that comes up around things is really deep. It's really profound. So honor it as a chance to see if I can move into this, let my heart break, just in this little, little instance. And we learn to trust that more. I know one of the big fears, well, it comes up for me, I know I'm not the only one, is saying, okay, my suffering is more than I can be with. If I step back and just look around the world, you know, it's too much. We're going to drown. It's overwhelming, you know. And from that stance, it is. And we all have moments when it's more than overwhelming. But what I, what gives me real faith is first my own personal experience of just like that little incident with my father, and I'll tell you other examples, and then looking out in the world, past and present, at the people, it's famous people, I guess, mostly, who've who really inspire me with their courage, with their compassion, people who have been witness to such a huge amount of suffering I can't even imagine. Like the Dalai Lama is a good classical example. And looking at how some of these people are in the world, there's a lightness, there's a kind of a, a joy that really shows it's not a sense of being so burdened and disconnected that they're dying from it, but that the other flip side of the compassion is the ability to really be present for joy. You're so present to life. Because we can't just hold off the pain, we hold off everything if we're shutting it out. When we're present with the pain, with that quivering heart, there's so much little moments of joy, of connectedness, because the underlying quality of our being really is love and connectedness. I'm sure you can't really see this, but... Well, you really won't see it, because I don't have it. (laughs) Oh, no, here it is. (laughs) You still probably can't see it. (laughs) It's a picture of the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Desmond Tutu. You know, from South Africa, they both won the Nobel Peace Prize. They're at a big conference in the University of Virginia last year where they, at the university they called together all the winners of the Nobel Peace Prize for the last some 10 years that could come. And they had about seven or eight of these people there to, to try and inspire what they talked of as the apathetic, self-involved student body to think about something other than material things for more than a moment. And really, that's what it says. <laughs> and these, these people really did inspire them. But anyway, what I loved about this is 
the Dalai Lama and Archbishop Tutu, these two guys who together have been witness to and present for the suffering of all the Tibetan refugees and the people in Tibet and all the apartheid in South Africa. And as you know, Archbishop Tutu has been the head of the Truth and Reconciliation Council that's been going on for the last year or two in South Africa, which just sounds heartrending, you know? People from both sides confessing the horrible things they've done and asking for amnesty. Whether it's forgiveness, I'm not sure they're asking for. But anyway, these two guys are clowning around. They get together. The picture says the, Arch- the Dalai Lama is trying to pull off Archbishop Tutu's cap. And he's kind of holding it on. And the Dalai Lama is just cracking up. And the guy behind him is laughing. It's like this childlike joy, you know? It's not this kind of heaviness of, oh, the suffering of the world. It's when you're so present with the suffering, you're so present with the joy. That's Looking at people like that is one of the things that really gives me the faith and the trust to dive in again the next time I'm going along happily doing my loving-kindness practice or my Vipassana practice or feeling really concentrated and a big wave of take your pick aversion, loneliness, resistance, fear, self-hatred, judgment, sorrow, grief, whatever, sleepiness, pain in your big toe. It could be anything. The next time it comes after I fight with it for a while, it's like, oh yeah, right. Diving in is the way to freedom, to unity, to connectedness. It's not what we're used to, it's not how we're trained, but it's the way to real peace. And what's so wonderful, what I truly believe, is that the greatness of heart, even say of Archbishop Tutu, of the Dalai Lama, of any of the people through the years, Martin Luther King, whoever, people that inspire me, you can see they're not perfect human beings, And that we don't have to think, well, you know, you have to be somebody special to have that greatness of heart. It really starts right here, how we're meeting the difficulties, the painful things that arise moment to moment. Whatever it is that comes up, what's so fascinating to me about meditation practice, both metta practice and vipassana practice, is that you can really see, moment to moment, how the heart and mind is relating to experience. And it seems, you know, we get down as the days go on and our world shrinks. You can get very specific in little moments to, to notice when a fear comes up, when a painful sensation comes up, when that memory comes up that last time led you into sorrow. We really can begin to see how the mind and heart relates. And guess what? Our whole life is only moment to moment. So the fact that it's all sort of exaggerated here gives us really useful, fascinating information to see how we can begin to shift, how the metta in this case shifts the way that our heart and mind habitually relates to difficult experience. Let me give you an example. When, um, in a moment of experience, something unpleasant arises, say it's a physical sensation that's unpleasant, or a sound, or a 
a thought, a, a, a smell, a taste, anything unpleasant, an emotion, it's happening right now, correct? Your knee hurts, that's an unpleasant sensation happening right now. Even if a mental memory comes up of something really sad and painful in your life two weeks ago, or fear comes up about something that's going to happen next week, that emotion, that thought is actually arising right now. Right? Notice what happens when we respond from aversion or fear. The aversion is that, you know, get this away from me. Don't want to feel it. Don't want to um, know about it. Don't want to think about it. It's bad. My practice, whatever. Push away. And fear is kind of like imagining it into the future. Oh my God, if I feel like this now and there's five more days to go, it's going to be absolutely unbearable. And it's not even going to be. It is unbearable because we take the whole five days and put it on this moment. Or if it's just a pain, and you know at the end of the sitting when you get up, that pain goes away, we might try to be doing metta, but really we're saying, oh no, oh no, 40 more minutes, this is impossible, I can't stand to be with it. That's fear, taking it into the future. But both of them, if you see the difference between metta and aversion and fear, the aversion and the fear is as if the attention shrinks back from connecting with whatever it is. A sensation, an emotion, the sensation of fear itself, it shrinks back, it shrinks away. It's as if the mind is thinking, somehow I can hold myself separate from this unpleasant or painful experience. I'll live a little ways away from it and hope that it goes away. And of course, that reinforces the experience of separation and disconnection, right? Because that is the experience, disconnect. And because the attention isn't really connecting with what's happening, you can't see it clearly. We can't really respond with wise discrimination because we're not connected, so we're seeing it through a veil of aversion and fear, which tends to build on itself, and we get more and more disconnected. So then it might manifest more as resistance or as stronger aversion or the, the fear goes into some other fear and pretty soon we're in this whole huge web of all the fears of our life and it might have started from something really little that the attention just disconnected from, flinches away. Look at how metta, in a moment of just friendliness, don't think about even these vast, wonderful, unitive kinds of metta, but the friendliness, the spaciousness, It just flows as if the energy, the attention, the heart, flows into whatever's arising without discrimination, without saying yes this, no that. It just flows into, covers, includes. It just flows as if the energy, the attention, the heart, flows into whatever's arising without discrimination, Without saying yes, this, no, that, it just flows into, covers, includes. Compassion is the same, although compassion would begin with the suffering aspect. It also flows out and includes everything. So there's this strong connection. There's no flinching back. There's no pulling away. So every time that there's simple moment of friendly metta, whatever it is that's happening, that's beginning to shift this moment-to-moment habit of disconnecting 
from the difficult. And of course then we feel disconnected, we feel separate. That's what the mind is doing in that moment. It's not the difficult experience itself that creates the separation, that keeps us out of peace, out of completion. It's that reaction of mind that seems to keep us separate. It makes us seem separate because we're pulling back. And just the simplicity of meeting what's happening. It's the same in mindfulness, it's just meeting it. Metta is this flowing into. In the meeting of it, the fear can fall away. It's the holding ourselves separate that promotes the fear. You read you, this is one of my favorite stories. I know some of you have heard it, but I love it. It's about how simple connectedness breaks through the fears from Michael Crichton. So Michael Crichton, this is a true story he's talking about. He was on a safari, a camping safari in Africa with his wife, one, and they were tenting at night with guides and all in some area. And he was kind of nervous and asking about lions and elephants and stuff. And the guides are, you know, kind of poo-pooing him and saying, don't be, there haven't been elephants, there haven't been lions, just go to sleep, you know. So in the middle of the night, he and his wife both woke up because there was huge crashing sounds going on outside. And he's talking in a story about they both lay there absolutely terrified, you know, just like totally petrified. And he's thinking, it's an elephant, it's an elephant. They both think, it's an elephant, oh my God, it's an elephant. Totally in panic. And finally he said he just couldn't stand it anymore. And without thinking, he grabbed his flashlight, unzipped the tent, shone the light out into, right into a huge brown eye. And it was an elephant, right immediately outside his little tent. But then he said, this is what was interesting. He said, oh, it's an elephant. Zipped his tent up, got back in bed, and went right to sleep. And so this is his musing about it, which is interesting. <laughs> he said, you know, the truth was he had slept well when he stopped worrying he said, I was quite impressed with the instantaneous flip in my own emotional state from a barely controlled hysteria to a detached calm once I saw the giant eye. How had that happened? And he went on all different things, that's because I'm so practical. But finally he said, later I realized we're all like that. We can all work ourselves into a hysterical panic over possibilities we're afraid to look at, to really connect with. What if I have cancer? What if my job's at risk? What if my kids are on drugs? What if I'm getting bald? What if an elephant is outside my tent? (laughs) What if I'm faced with some terrible thing I don't know how to deal with? And that hysteria goes away the instant we are really willing to hear the answer, even if the answer is what we feared all along. Yes, you have cancer. Yes, you're going bald. Yes, there's an elephant outside your tent. The question becomes then, what are you going to do about it? So this is the discriminating wisdom. Subsequent emotions may not be pleasant, but the hysteria stops. Hysteria accompanies an unwillingness to look at what is really going on. It promotes an unwillingness to look. We feel we are afraid to look when actually it is not looking that keeps us afraid. 
And it's really like that in our metta practice. It's not that everything gets hunky-dory, but it means that with the outflowing, accepting, clear connection of metta or of compassion, ah, this is what's happening. Again, we're connected to the world, to ourselves, and there's wise discrimination. We can act appropriately without getting lost in the fear. And what's really interesting is that as long as we might spend lost in the fear, as long as we might have spent conditioning ourselves all our lives to push away the difficult, the unpleasant, it's one of the things that keeps a retreat retreats going, is that it only takes a moment of real open connectedness to cut through that all. <laughs> She's laughing. We can have days of awfulness and we have this one moment of, oh yes, it's really true. We're all connected and that keeps us going for days more <laughs> because the truth is so much stronger. One of my teachers used to say, a spark of truth burns up a mountain of lies. And it's true. It's true. Truth is so strong. And in that one moment, we're whole, we're connected to life, and we know it's true. It keeps us going. I'll give you a personal example again. Really of how the shift of attitude, the connectedness to the suffering, changes everything. It changes our life. So this is sort of personal, about... 10 or 11 years ago, I was developing some condition that no one knew what it was. And even after they knew it, they still don't know what it is, you know, one of those. Now we can give it a name, that's it. But anyway, at that time, um, I was developing a lot of symptoms that were severely restricting my activity and that were painful. And once the condition was diagnosed, it's one of these that nothing could happen or you could die, you know, or anywhere in between. And so it was scary, of course. It was painful, of course. I went through, you know, all the stuff, resistance, and more interesting, the levels of shame, of blame, the whole kind of sense of spiritual failure, sort of, I really, a little bit is kind of the New Age affirmations, if I could think the right thoughts, this would go away. And all my years of meditation, I'm still not thinking the right thoughts, you know. So somehow, this was a little subterranean, but somehow I was a spiritual failure, you know. And um, although I can really watch my mind go into a whole lot, all the future fear, oh my God, I'll never take a walk again, I'll never, I could see that and bring it right back. There was still a level of really feeling of... Um, I think my body had really let me down, right? It had really uh, abandoned me. It had failed me. And uh, uh, a lot of feeling of being betrayed and difficulty with it. So at some point, I I was living here, and I came home one day, and some, some old Tibetan Lama in his 80s just happened to be visiting for the afternoon which happens here sometimes. And so one of my friends grabbed me and said, oh, he's got to give you a blessing, you know, and dragged me over and he said something and bonked me on the head with his staff and said, okay, say these words, some words in Tibetan, which didn't mean anything to me, and do this healing mantra. So I said, sure, why not? What do I have to lose? 
So I would sit over there. That's when I started having to sit in the chair during a three-month retreat. And luckily, the yogis didn't know that I was sitting there saying my Tibetan mantra and doing my healing meditation. And really, I was just surrendering to it. I wasn't trying to get better. I wasn't doing anything. I was just doing it because what did I have to lose? And I think it was actually that attitude of just being with it that what slowly began to happen was a real attitude of compassion to my body, almost as if you know, holding my body as a separate being, as a baby, instead of identifying with it so much, instead of being annoyed with it, instead of being afraid, instead of, you know, as I realized I was holding myself a little bit away from my body, that if I really sank into the sensations, it would trigger this whole level of, of fear and betrayal. So a little bit away. So it was simply the compassion of connecting. That's all that it began to, as if in my mind, cry and say, wow, I've been so angry at you, poor body, and you're really hurting, you know? It really isn't helping you to be angry. And I just began to hold it with a, with a compassion, letting go, and this, none of this was like a conscious, I should do this, but in the meeting it, just as it was, with kindness, just that flowing in of attention without the pulling away, a whole different level of, Acceptance came in. It's like, again, I felt whole, connected again to life, not the separation. And the whole sense of what healing means changed. So it moved from doing a healing mantra to get better, some idea of better, to just really letting go into the unknown. That healing can mean anything, really. And if I died, I died. I mean, I'm not saying I still feel like that now, right? The capacity for denial remains huge. So now that I'm feeling better, you know, yeah, that, that was it then. <laughs> this is now and everything's hunky-dory. Just watch that in your mind, too. But really the sense of all the shoulds fell away, a complete connection, and through that, again, reintroduced to the sense of wholeness, the sense of peace, the sense of connectedness, to all of life. And so that particular time, that illness became the doorway into my kinship with all beings, you know, not something to fear anymore. And from that, I actually began to have better discrimination about what to do. In other words, I didn't respond so much or make decisions out of fear. I was telling someone today, everyone said, because the cold isn't good for, for me now. Oh, you should move to Arizona, you know, you should take care of yourself, you should stop teaching, you should do this and that. And I realized, in thinking that, that was all fear-based for me to have done that at that time. It wasn't necessary. And instead, some good friends of mine were going to India for a few weeks. And I said, yeah, I think I'll go to India with you. And they're probably the only friends that would have said, yeah, great. Whereas everyone else, are you out of your mind, you know, going to India? I'd been on a, trying to eat a really pure diet, you know, no wheat, no dairy, no sugar. So I went to India, where you live on grease, chai, sugar, and wheat. I felt better, you know? (laughs) What can I say? (laughs) So who knows? So again, we never really know. It's opening into the unknown. But that simple meeting, whatever's happening with kindness, it's our avenue in to unity. And it doesn't really matter what level the suffering's at. Payment children again. Learning how to be kind to ourselves, learning how to respect ourselves, 
is important. The reason it's important is that fundamentally, when we look into our own hearts and begin to discover what is confused and what is brilliant, what is bitter and what is sweet, it isn't just ourselves that we're discovering. We're discovering the universe. There's an interesting transition that occurs naturally and spontaneously. We begin to find that to the degree that there is bravery in ourselves, the willingness to look, to point directly at our own hearts, and to the degree that there is kindness towards ourselves. There's confidence that we can actually forget ourselves and open to the world. The reason that we don't open our hearts and minds to other people is that they trigger confusion in us, and we don't maybe at the moment feel brave enough to deal with it. But to the degree that we look clearly and compassionately at ourselves, we begin to feel confident and fearless about looking into someone else's eyes. And so really all this hard practice we're doing, there's no way it can only be for yourself. And don't worry if it seems like what's going on is kind of small. I found, I really believe it, that the specifics of our own experience that we can open to, of our own suffering, lead us into the vastness of the suffering and the unity of the world. I imagine a lot of you have had the experience of sorrow, of grief, and when you really let yourself courageously open into it, that the specific sorrow seems to move beyond that. You know, it seems as if we're crying for the pain of the world. It seems to be much more than whatever our specific story is, our specific grief. When you touch the heart of grief, you become all mothers, all fathers, all children, all people. We're united in that. And there's a, there's a poignant beauty to it when we're not afraid to feel that grief, to feel that sorrow. And so we start small. We start with ourselves. And I know, I know how much time in this metta practice it can really feel like absolutely nothing is going on. You're saying the phrases. You're not feeling metta. You feel like you're suffering and just lost and spinning in it. You throw out a phrase now and again, you know. And you're like, you know, this is really a joke. I just want to tell you from my own experience, and remember, remember the woman I told you about the last time who did it for three months and found her life really different. There's changes taking place on a level we really don't know. Sharon Salzberg likes to say, when I've taught Metta retreats with her, she's getting, so she says it over and over, she says, it really doesn't matter if you don't feel anything. It really doesn't matter. The changes are happening you know, on another level that's often beneath our consciousness. Just that willingness to make that commitment of well-wishing. That's an intention that is strengthening the ability to move into the beauty and the suffering without holding back. It's reclaiming our wholeness, starting where we are. And it's not 
courageous and kind to ourselves, feeling whatever suffering we're going through, huge or small. It's not about some of the, it's not about being passive. It's not about so-called deluded compassion. You know, compassion doesn't always mean, oh, I should feel good. I mean, I guess you're getting the drift of that, right? But sort of deluded compassion is sometimes, okay, well, this is really hard, I better leave. Before it even gets hard, there are times when absolutely the pain we're going through, the fear, the grief, the um, sadness, the terror, is way too strong. We can't bring the metta to it. We can't bring mindfulness to it. It's overwhelming us. Absolutely, at those times, the compassionate and wise action is to back off. There's no question. When we say you hit with a difficult person and you get lost in anger, we say, please, go to where it's easy. That's wisdom. That's compassion. But to begin to move into the difficult person, you say, oh, oh, there's that thing I don't like. It might get really unpleasant. I better not try and go back. That's different, you know. That's like acting out of fear before it happens, so-called diluted compassion. Or, and I think this happens even more, is confusing compassion with codependence. So I'll give you, this is just such a little example, but it popped up in my mind today for obvious reasons. Um, Some of us are really allergic to black fly bites. I'm sure some of you are really allergic to black fly bites. Um, And so yesterday, this little incident happened to me twice. I was outside and talking to two different friends, and as we talked, the swarms started to gather. You know, first you think they're not there, then they start swarming. And when I get bitten by black fly bites, it doesn't bother me at first, but for days afterwards, I swell up and itch and get kind of feverish. So I noticed in both cases, the other person wasn't so bothered, and I know some people aren't so bothered, and there was this tendency to think, oh, well, it's an important conversation. I need to stay here with them and talk to them, you know, without thinking of sort of that's the compassionate, friendly thing to do. And I realized that's not. That was just codependence, not wanting to say, you know what, I can't stand here anymore. Let's go inside. I mean, inside was like five feet away in one case, <laughs> you know. And he was saying, oh, no, stay here. It's so nice. We can have our tea out here on the porch, you know. And, oh, yeah, he really needs me to be here. That's not compassion. That's codependence. Compassion takes in the whole situation. says, you know what, let's go inside. And if the person doesn't want to, fine. That's their choice, too, you know. Like getting all bitten up to no purpose. That's not the same as compassion. There might be another time when that same situation you really would need to stay, right? So compassion connects us and you can make a wise choice. Actually, a fearless choice. Codependence is a lot based on fear, huh? So compassion can be quite fearless. And so I know this is such a little example, but I thought you could relate. (laughs) I related. So the compassion, what it leads us to is the fearlessness that comes from knowing we're living in truth. We're living in our connectedness. We don't need to be afraid of fear itself. We don't need to be afraid of sorrow. Sure, we'll still tend to hold back. But knowing, as a friend of mine says, her sons are always telling her, her grown sons, 
when they go to Hawaii or somewhere where there's big surf, they're always trying to tell her how to be safe from the waves. When a huge wave is coming, you have to turn around and dive into it. And she says, I know it's true, but I just can't do it. Every time I turn around and run, and the wave (laughs) clobbers me. So with the fearlessness of compassion, we really learn that we can trust diving in. And you come to that smooth place of peace where the wave merges into the ocean and there's no separation anymore. And we're also part of that ocean. That's really, it's a whole different way to meet the difficulties. And I know it might, I don't know, I don't know if it sounds a little too nicey-nice to you, but it's, it happens to be true. So play with it. Experiment with it. Really learn to see that even the resistance, even your loneliness, even that backache, it doesn't matter what. When met with metta, which turns to compassion in the face of suffering, is again our avenue into the boundlessness of a heart that's free and connected. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. May our sincere practice be for the benefit and happiness of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.